0: Pod Only Knows is a Cage Club podcast. For other smart podcasts on culture, pop, and otherwise, go to cageclub.me.
1: You can contact us via email at POK at cageclub.me.
0: You can find me on Twitter at Probably Real JB.
1: And you can find me at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker. And you can find the show on Twitter at Pod Only Knows Pod.
0: The show is written and produced by us.
1: welcome to pod only knows i'm kelly baker
0: i'm john brooks
1: and we are super excited to be here today Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, as always as always we're always (laughs) excited (laughs) i feel like i say that every time where i'm like we're super stoked to be here Mm -hmm. um but i am i'm always super stoked to be here um so that's great Yeah. um and we have It'd be a funny fun... if you were
0: like it sucks to be here today
1: it would be it would be it would yeah. be it would be so we're not going <laughs> to stop listening
0: this stop is gonna li- be a bad one
1: <laughs> <laughs> right it's gonna be a rough one prepare whatever well. there's other podcasts out there
0: people <laughs> pay
1: attention to them instead <laughs> Panel-
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: oh yeah we're not gonna do that we're not gonna no. do that um no yeah, one day the excitement might wear off, but I doubt that that's ever going to happen. I doubt that's ever going to happen.
0: We're going to move to we're content to be here today.
1: We're content. We're, yeah, we're, yeah. We've we've
0: resigned ourselves <laughs> <laughs> to this life. If we've ever
1: shifted to NPR voice, right, where it's yeah, like, you know, yeah. everyone will know that it's taken a turn, but I don't know that that's going to happen to us.
0: Yeah. I, th- I Like NPR, I think it's getting a little less NPR voicey lately. Oh, well, They're trying good. to get like edgier and younger. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, they need have... more
1: Leos is what they need, I think.
0: They do. I mean, I love the MP- NPR voice of the like 80s and 90s that was satirized in SNL and, yeah. and people know, but you know i also think npr voices should be like very colorful and right. that's what makes npr great and right. um yeah i think i think yeah. there's probably something to be said about like podcast culture shifting NPR's approach, maybe? And like I
1: hope so. Each
0: other. Yeah. I'm sure somebody's written that article. or It's
1: got to be out there somewhere. Academic
0: paper. <laughs>
2: it, has to, it has to be there.
1: There has to be some graduate student working on that, yeah. right? How podcasts have shifted the way yeah. that people approach this.
0: Now, having a master's degree in digital humanities, I kind of now wish I'd written that paper. Now I'm like, I want to go back John, and figure on. out where I can slot that one in. Yeah. <laughs> that like, sounds really interesting. Come on, how did you not do this?
1: I at least have an excuse because I was trained as an archival
0: yeah, Maryland
1: <laughs> <Fair laughs> historian. There's no expectation that I would have done something like that, but like mm-hmm. I think, I think the idea about how the voice changed, right, or how mm-hmm. it caused that shifting in voice, or how we approach that, could have been really, really fascinating. Because um, mm-hmm. I think a lot about how I sound and about the sort of comments that I get sometimes when I do podcasts where people. Are surprised that I have like a slight Southern accent, even though I'm really <laughs> honest about the fact that I'm from rural Florida. Um, yeah, but that it meshes somehow with some sort of Valley Girl thing, and I'm like, I don't know, man. Like that's just where it <laughs> that's where it lands. Um, so yeah, it is. It it's is also kind of our funny.
0: generation that's just like how we talk.
1: It is how we talk. So
0: we're yeah. old now, we and are. like you know, yeah, we're people with but degrees and stuff now. We so are. like we are, and
1: I just still talk this way. That's just the way it kind of falls but it is kind of funny to hear the responses that i get periodically where people are like i'm surprised (laughs) you sound like this you have a phd and i'm like sorry dude (laughs) you get what you you really
0: got to meet more people with phds because they do they
1: do because it's a different sort of thing than what they expect i think they all sound Um, like that yeah sound not quite maybe what they're Ex- they're not as stuffy as maybe they're expecting them to sound. So um Also, okay. like if you have a
0: PhD, you, you you have you have been like a perpetual college student. So you yeah, know Yeah, I mean, so how do you
1: expect us to sound? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: do you know how long that takes? Jesus Christ.
1: It takes a really long time. A really long time. Um yeah, so how 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 indeed would you expect us to sound?
0: <laughs> how <laughs> <Or> indeed?
1: <another? laughs> All right, John, so give us your good news.
0: Oh, uh, sure. Okay, so um, there's a couple things I could actually choose from here, but I'm 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 going to say just as also a way of uh, pitching something else. A couple weeks ago, I uh, was invited to give a talk on the Strange Realities series done by um, the Conspiranormal Normal podcast, Very talking cool. about. Yeah, talking about um, Jesus' historicity methodology, which sounds really boring, but, like, um, isn't.
1: <laughs> well, you dig it, right? So that makes it exciting I do, and I fun. do,
0: I do. Um, yeah, so I was going over some of the um, more out there uh, arguments towards Jesus' mythicism and some of the uh less compelling arguments towards historicity and sort of parsing them out and giving a kind of uh case by case sort of demonstration of some of the good ones and bad ones and what makes them good and what makes them bad and what are some of the counter arguments to them so um it's an interesting sort of field uh it is not very well understood in terms of like um what the what the what the strong arguments are and what the weak okay. arguments are and um, and it's also because of that a real hotbed of like nonsense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of conspiracy culture and a lot of the um, sort of grifty uh, books that are sold on the subject uh, rely on people really not understanding the methodology okay. um, behind the way we assess uh, the earliest earliest Christianity that is like pre-Paul, um, okay. where there's a real, frankly, a real sort of like black hole of information okay um and because of that like there's a lot of really terrible books that um purport all these conspiracy theories about the genesis of christianity that are nonsense Uh, but at the same time like you know the 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 idea that jesus may have been a fully mythologized figure is not completely outlandish either and and there's there's reason to believe both but like those the reasons are um very specific and like uh so trying to break down as simply as possible like the ones that i ca- i come across the most and that i think are are you know weak and strong and so on and so forth so yeah i was talking for like an hour straight into um a, zo- a zoom <laughs> presentation a yeah which is always hard because like you never really get the you never really know how people are responding to it um mm-hmm. you can see facial expressions a little bit sometimes but that's but that's about it and uh so yeah about halfway through i was sort of like um any questions? Because I don't know if you guys are like asleep or what's happening here. But no, right, they were really right. into it. It was great. And there was really, really good follow-up questions. And um, my voice was very tired afterwards. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And uh, Adam Sane, who hosts uh, and created that podcast, uh, is going to have us on sometime Yay! in the next few weeks. So looking forward to that. Um, so what's, what's your good news?
1: So my good news is not academic at all but yep. it is that taylor swift
0: so i'm a swifty <laughs>
1: you had to know this is coming you were spider-man this I was, week i thought you I were was doing not. spider-man i okay, almost right. did i might okay. have to come back to spider-verse but taylor swift <laughs> released her speak now taylor's version which is nice. one of my favorite albums of hers nice. and so i've had that on repeat much to my family's chagrin that they have had to listen to this album over and over and over again um that uh I feel terrible for them um, but I've caught them singing along to the songs Ooh, so I'm wearing okay. them down right because okay. um, I sing along to the songs all day long so they're just yes. sort of stuck dealing with um, Taylor Swift though uh, my partner is like can we please like move on <laughs> from this and I'm like I'm never going to move on it's just never going to happen um, yeah. so that's been my like fun thing that I've been doing is just listening to this album because I yeah. sort of love her music and Yeah, I've been a fan of hers for a really long time, and um, I've been eagerly awaiting the drop of this album, not eagerly (laughs) awaiting it enough that I stayed up till midnight to listen to it. No,
2: like the youth.
1: Right. Because I'm just too old for that nonsense. Um, But I was able to download it the day after and I was able to, like, really listen to it and do this. I like the new songs and I like the vibe of it and the way she's changed it. Um, so yeah, so that's my good news is that I've now like outed myself as a Swifty <laughs> to our listeners. But um folks would know that if they followed me on Twitter for yeah. Yeah, yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this you're is not, not you're not shy not, about it. I'm not shy about this at no. all. Um but yeah, so that's what I've been doing and inflicting this upon other people that have been around me. So um,
0: so when see. you said you were downloading Speak Now, I genuinely thought it might be on Twitter. And I was I like, know. oh, God. another one?
1: I know. Well, I mean, at this point, I'm between like, three, we can't handle any more social media
0: No more Twitters. <laughs> like, we just
1: really can't at this point. No, I have, yeah. like, them all on my phone at this point. And, like, some of them I've abandoned already. But it's just one of those things where I'm like, I can't, like, how do you manage this? I just feel really terrible for social media managers right now who must Mm -hmm. just be losing their minds because they have to keep track of all these different ones and doing different content and, like, figuring out what the ecosystem is like in some sort of way where um, I don't even know. Like, the vibes are so different for each of them that it's just kind of strange to, like, play around <laughs> with them and figure out what's going on. They but, are yeah. very different vibes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I've decided to sort of like, I'm going to use threads as sort of um, a, a less, less snarky. uh yeah more genuine more, more, yeah more <laughs> genuine more boring twitter is my twitter's twitter and then i'm just like blue sky i'm just like whatever i'll just post whatever the hell comes to mind on blue sky cause... my blue
1: sky has been a lot of coffee content i don't know why yeah. but it's just yeah. a lot of coffee content <laughs> which gets more likes so i don't know like maybe that's what it's for for me but yeah no
3: it I feel is like it everybody's rolling
0: their eyes when they post on blue sky that's sort of yeah the vibe. no like, it just is just
1: imagine revive. someone rolling their yeah. eyes as they no post that's
3: okay
0: I have to say so Taylor Swift is um just real quick like that's a that's a very so I uh my kids are now I have three daughters and they are now emerging into their like Taylor Swift fandom. Yeah. Um so like I know almost like there's a lot of songs that I've heard sort of in the ether that mm-hmm. I've later been informed are Taylor Swift. <laughs> I did not know that they <laughs> were Taylor Swift.
2: That's funny.
0: Um, and my wife's like, "You know that song?" I'm like, "No, I don't." And she's like, "It goes like this." I'm like, "Oh fuck, that's Taylor Swift." Um, yeah, yep. <laughs> she's everywhere. Things, yeah, she is everywhere. And so, like, so my only real two points of reference are, um, I know nineteen eighty nine pretty well because of Ryan Adams. Uh Uh, because I listened to his cover album before I before we realized like what a total prick he was. I mean I've always said he's a prick, but like not that much of one. Loved his music, uh and I love that cover album, um, problematic though he is. Uh so I know those songs, or at least his versions of them. Uh Uh and so can kind of recognize when I hear the originals. And then but like so Taylor Swift is I mean I get it, but it's also she is basically like I'm basically the perfect demo to completely miss Taylor Swift. Yeah. Right. Natalie Merchant is my Taylor Swift. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm just like the exact right age where I yep. just don't get it. Yep. And yep. and it's interesting because people who are similar age to me, like you, very, very close in age, uh, they're like all about it and it's just it's weird very like specific microgenerational yeah i think i yeah. have with, yeah um, with with certain people but she's cool i like that anti-hero song it's very like kate bushy Yeah, um, yeah
2: yeah,
1: yeah. no hi i'm, I'm the not dating that's that weirdo me. yeah,
2: now. yeah no sure. i know
1: this is my my teen is like you know and i'm like yeah i know
2: i know yeah i yeah. was like
1: i understand and so my my teen has aged out of the taylor swift thing right and of course it's right. like over it and this is a way to also troll me right is that i am so you not know, cool like because i still like now? taylor swift and i'm like yeah. dude I'm, I'm great with that because i just know that i'm uncool and i'm okay with that at this point like yeah she just... seems to
0: be really struggling to find an audience now i've noticed um she can barely sell out
1: yeah i mean clearly clearly to of her teeth. yeah it's gonna be a hard road
0: oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right that's enough that's enough yep. say, um but no i'm glad i'm glad the new one's good or the new old one right the that's new what she's old doing one. is like making yep. the old ones again yep. and then adding new songs yeah like
1: it's amazing, yeah. yeah. It's
0: like the Star Wars special editions, except it is. Taylor Swift.
1: Except Taylor Swift.
0: Job of the Huts in the new Taylor Swift album. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's our guest today?
1: Uh, so our guest today is a friend of mine, which is part of the reason that I'm always excited, but I'm mm-hmm. super excited today. Yes. So it's uh, Dr. Shrina Gandhi, who teaches in the Religious Studies Department at Michigan State University. And she primarily teaches classes on religion, race, uh, religion and race in the Americas. And she's currently finishing up a book called A Cultural History of Yoga in the United States, which Mm -hmm. looks at the intersections of race, gender and class and how yoga is practiced and commodified in both religious and secular spaces. Super cool.
0: Very cool.
1: Yeah. So I'm very glad that we have Shrina on today thank you so much for being with us, Sharina. We appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It's such an honor. So I'm going to start off with one of the questions that we tend to ask most of the people that join us, which is how in the world did you get started in religious studies? We're really interested in pot only knows about how people got into this arena and like what drew them into this and like in the arena. Yeah. No. Do you (laughs) like that? That's going to be my new, like, metaphor for this (laughs) season like the gladiatorial battle that is religious Mm -hmm. studies like
3: how did you get here sometimes sometimes it does feel like you're in the middle of this for lack of better words circus Uh mm uh-huh and no one understands what you're doing because i feel like I, I I know Kelly. You and I have talked about this, but I feel like sometimes I'm an outlier in religious studies, and that I'm screaming into the abyss with you and Megan and some other of our <laughs> friends. Like, what is going on, right, <laughs> right? right, in our field that uh, we think this kind of analysis or behavior or whatever it is is okay? Um, But, you know, I I did listen to some of your other episodes, not all of them. I haven't gotten through all of them, but I was ready for this question. And (laughs) this question (laughs) has a lot of meaning because I would say the number one reason that I got into religious studies, and I didn't know it at the time because I was so young, was my grandfather, my dad's father. And he... Um, him and my grandmother met because they were both medical students just before independence in India. And so that's pretty amazing that I had a grandmother who was a medical student and they went to Bengal in the early 1940s because the British had forced a famine there. So whenever anyone says anything nice about Churchill, I just like to be my regular self and remind everyone that he is a (laughs) genocidal maniac And that there's nothing to be proud of because he basically orchestrated the killing of three million Bengalis by denying them food that was there and available. So uh, my grandparents went out there to uh, help as much as they could. And I know this had a deep impact on both their lives because my grandmother would save like the if there was like just a tiny piece of carrot or potato left she would wrap it in like three layers of cling wrap (laughs) and like put it in the fridge maybe retrieve it maybe forget about it who knows (laughs) you know um but this behavior was always like really embarrassing to me as a child until my grandfather told me well this is how we met you know And the other reason I know it had a deep impact on their life because my grandparents came from two different castes, and uh, they got married and they were shunned by both of their families. Um, They had my dad in 1952 and they couldn't, despite both being doctors, they barely found work and they couldn't pay the 400 rupees they needed to get him life-saving medication. So, um, they got money from a family friend and this family friend ended up following them to Uganda where they could actually practice as doctors. And so, um, my grandfather was an avid reader. I have all the books he ever read. He gifted them to me and he read every single Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Indian based guru that was out there. Um, writing things, uh, writing philosophy of Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever it was. You know, he read everything and ended up, I'm not entirely sure on the timings, but sometime in the 1970s, early 80s, they left being Hindu and became Buddhists and spent the rest of their lives uh, going around teaching Vipassana meditation uh, for free to uh, many different people in Massachusetts and in India and in Wales, all over Europe, um, Dallas. You know, they, they were <laughs> definitely global trotters in the latter half of their lives. And whenever, every summer, my grandfather and grandmother would come to New York to spend time with us. And my grandfather and I would take a walk every morning. And during that walk, we would talk about everything. God-related, society-related. We talked about oppression. We talked, obviously, about his disdain for caste. Uh, you know, a lot about the Buddha and Buddhism. Uh, you know, I'm just really lucky that I had that time
2: mm-hmm.
3: to talk to him and to learn from him because, mm-hmm. you know... Not everyone gets great grandparents. And I not only have my four grandparents, but I also have my grandparents' siblings that have just been more than lovely to me and so loving. So I feel like the reason I went into religious studies, I didn't intend to. (laughs) But when I took my first college class in religious studies as a first year, I just remember thinking, calling my grandfather up and being like, I found a class where I can continue. And it was,
2: mm-hmm.
3: it was a class called the problem with religious thought by, <laughs> <laughs> uh, by Mark, it was taught by Mark Wallace at Swarthmore college. And um, yeah, that that's, I mean, you know, I took AP US history as well. And that made me think, Oh, maybe I'll be a historian instead mm-hmm. of, doctor like I was thought I would be because I come from a very long like every one of my family's doctors my grandmother my father my grandfather you know so I just thought why not and um, yeah so I guess AP US history which that's totally my parents' fault because they made me take all the APs. It is. It is. You can blame them fully. <laughs> and also my grandfather. And I found that when I took history courses in college, I just didn't find them as intellectually um, inspiring. And that's not to say anything mm-hmm. against the great history teachers I had, like I had a wonderful um, African-American woman, Allison Dorsey, who sat me down and was just like, you can be so much better than what you're showing me you know, and I just so appreciate her, appreciated her taking the time out to kind of call me out, call me in and make me better, you know. Um, But I also felt like a lot of history classes, at least at Swarthmore, was a lot of historiography. And intellectually, I don't know I was there yet for historiography. Um, And so religious studies just provided something to me that was Uh, that I could really sink my teeth into, Mm -hmm. not just in terms of thinking about history and and why people believe and do certain things the way they do at certain times. um, But it also gave me a way to think about morals and values. Mm -hmm. And I I guess, you know, what I'm thinking about more and more, and I know I've talk to you about this a little bit kelly is i feel like sometimes because in religious studies we're so afraid and especially in american religious studies we're so afraid of being called theologians Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) yes
3: Uh right that we sometimes abandon the morality part of what we're doing right yeah and um i think that Religious studies has an amazing opportunity to really grab onto that and and stake our claim in, in humanities and say, we have something to say about the state of the world right. and how we got here Yeah, and how we can be better. But I mm-hmm. feel like we shy away from that a little bit. Yeah, I think there's an intense nervousness about that, right?
1: About making ethical claims or having some sort of act. I mean, and that's when you get accused of having activism in your work, right? Like that you, that you are an activist because you've made some sort of ethical claim or you have moral qualms with something that you see in the world and you're advocating for something different right or you're concerned with something like justice and that starts to make people really nervous about what you're working on which I've always felt is kind of strange right um when especially when you work on topics like you and I do when it's white supremacy where I feel like yes we should have some sort of moral stake in what we're working on here because it's
3: a very simple moral stake white supremacy is bad (laughs) right right it's not hard it's not hard at all um But
1: I think I think you're exactly right that it is that concern over that being somehow um, a theological stake still that makes people just very, very nervous about that, very, very anxious that they're going to somehow be painted with that theological brush when Mm -hmm. um, as listeners will know I am definitely not a theologian right? <laughs> by any John's laughing at me don't laugh at me like that John right. um, no it's it's really funny actually but, um, no, but it's I not think your lane it's, it's, yeah, not, my lane. it's yeah. not my lane it's not my lane at all yeah. but you know I think that I can still have a moral sensibility right or an ethical yeah. sensibility about what we do and I think that your work deeply has that too Sherina and um, but it is I think an important thing that you know that there, there is that kind of nervousness still um, particularly in folks that do american religious studies about this yeah. right But they even in teaching
3: concerned. i feel like we're kind of expected to say no we don't do theology we'll not tell you how to be religious but i almost sometimes want to say but i will try to teach you about how to be a good human being yeah yeah you
2: know? yeah how uh, to be a
3: person in the world right yeah um, how to be yeah. a little less racist yeah you know? right yeah <laughs> a little less like sexist. (laughs) Right. No, I I think it's, it's fascinating because I
1: always had that as like one of the pillars of my teaching as I was like, I'm trying to teach you about how to be a person in the world. And students Mm -hmm. were always like, what? And I was like, yeah, because you are a person in the world. And like, part of my job is like, maybe to make the world a little bit better. Like perhaps like that could be part of like my pedagogy in some sort of way. Um, and that, um, I didn't realize that was like somewhat radical until I like presented that to people. And then they like, (laughs) were like, you're doing what, you know, like, what are you
3: saying to them? You know, Um, shock I got once was, this is at my former job. Um, I'm at Michigan State University. I was at Kalamazoo College, and my chair called me radical. She was like, You do know you're radical, right? And I was like, What? What?" (laughs) There is a very firm part of me that really enjoys capitalism. So I don't know how radical I really could be, but I think it was just because of talking about white supremacy, you know, not being afraid to be like, That's a bad decision that that person made you know uh, not just about historical figures like I think I think I I think one of the ways in which I set the tone in, in my classes is when I talk about Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. and I have to say like yeah I, I like what he wrote in this query but these are the misfacts that the facts he just gets wrong like I think he has a line in query 17 or 16 I forget where he says that we wouldn't have democracy had Rome not allowed free inquiry or something mm-hmm. like that. And I'm like, Rome allowing free inquiry. Where did that come from? Right. <laughs> you know, which part right. Of Rome? We all yeah. know our Roman history. And one of the things that I would say about Roman history is there wasn't like an emphasis on free will <laughs> per se, or, you know, thinking what you want to think outside the lines. Right. Um, So, but the other thing about Thomas Jefferson that I think, you know, people have a hard time confronting is that he was an enslaver. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And inherently, can you be a good person if you're an enslaver? And I don't have a good answer to that because because I don't think you can be. So maybe I do have a good answer to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I have an uncomfortable answer to that. Right. And the other thing that I do struggle with, but like I really try to practice is referring to him And Sally Hemings, not as a relationship, but as one where she was exploited. She was underage. She was raped. Right. right? And so that makes Thomas Jefferson not just the writer of the Declaration of Independence, where he did, you know, write terrible things about black people and indigenous people, not just an enslaver, not just, you know, uh, someone who had definite moral issues, but also a rapist. Right, and that's. I think students have a hard time with that, but mm-hmm. I feel like it sets the tone that this is not going to be a class where I am going to sugarcoat what our history is. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, and and th- those histories are deeply uncomfortable histories, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not comfortable histories, even though students really. A lot of students really desire them to be because that's yeah. what a lot of them are really used to, is that Thomas Jefferson is a hero, mm-hmm. not someone that you would say these things about, right? And instead, yeah. you know, it's a very different approach to him. It's a very honest approach to him that they haven't necessarily experienced more and that is experienced before. And I think what I like about your work, Shrina, is that you really push at those intersections of oppression and really pay attention to those very seriously, both in your pedagogy and in your scholarly work. And so when you. you're, when you're welcome. So when you're talking about... <laughs> When you're talking, can you tell that Srina and I adore each other? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah I um, so that when you're talking about something like yoga, you're also pressing at these intersections, right? Because um, I think oftentimes when we think about yoga, John and I were talking about this off mic earlier, is that most of the time when people think about yoga, they think about it ahistorically, and yeah. they think about it in a very kind of physical sense, right? So they think about Like the classes that you can go to that are like power yoga and they think about like spandex and they think about like thin white women and they, you know, like there are all these associations with it that very much take it out of context and it very much put it in a capitalist system, but not necessarily a historical system in some sort of way. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how your work on yoga tries to kind of counteract that and work through some of that complexity that we know is there, but just is kind of missing from those common portrayals of yoga that we see most often.
3: Yeah, well, you know, in terms of, I mean, yoga has a very long, long history that to me, you know, if we had the evidence, I bet we could find that it predates Hinduism predates Buddhism. Um, And it grew up with lots of different religions, you know, so it's not just Hindu, it's not just Buddhist, it's not just Jain, but it has been influenced by different contexts, communities, traditions throughout time. And we're in the middle of another influence, uh, a very American influence, capitalistic influence. And the thing with capitalism is that capitalism doesn't want you to know history or details or inconvenient labor. Mm-hmm. Right. And because that way it can sell better. Um, and you don't have to worry about the thousands of people that went, you know, in did backbreaking labor so you can drive your nice car. Right. right. You know, um, and uh so I, similarly with yoga, calling too much attention to its Indian past, um, South Asian, Indian, to its Hindu and Buddhist past, other than at the surface level, will then remind people too much of some of these more complicated histories, I think.
2: Mm. you know,
3: And I think what's really interesting that's going on right now is you're having a lot of South Asian American and African American women, primarily, um, really try to infuse the teaching of their yoga and the practicing of their yoga with some of these histories. And um, I'm seeing uh, white yoga teachers do that, too. Uh, At least they're trying to start. And what I say to them whenever I give talks or, you know, organize workshops or anything is you don't have to Say things in sanskrit right you don't have to say om or namaste namaste really just means hello so no need to over spiritualize or complicate that you can say right? hello
0: yeah. you can just
3: say hello right word for
0: that uh, yes
3: <laughs> and most people in india do yoga using the vernacular anyway right no nobody's sanskrit was a language for a very privileged few that the majority of people didn't use historically and don't use today. So you don't have to, you know, over-spiritualize or orientalize or exotify yoga by using Sanskrit. Um, uh, You also don't need to wear yoga pants, right? When I studied yoga in India, I was doing yoga next to people. I was in my old Navy yoga pants that had the label things that make you go om, which is why I bought it. (laughs) Like, I'm, I'm not lying when I say I'm a capitalist right? <laughs> and a very reluctant capitalist. <laughs> but, uh, um, they, so I was in my fancy old Navy $12 yoga pants and, um, they were in saris. So that was like a, right, right, right. Very humbling moment for me where I was like, <laughs> they are doing yoga like a thousand times better than me in like a complicated, you know, folding of six yards of fabric and I can barely touch my toes in yoga pants. Right. Right. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but there are a lot of things that are attached to yoga because I mean, yoga itself is is very cheap to do. You just need your body really. Right. Right. But what makes yoga so appealing especially in this current moment of wellness is all the products attached to it Mm
2: -hmm. that you can buy
3: that you need quote unquote Mm -hmm. need in order to practice it properly so you need a yoga mat if you're older like me maybe you need a little mat for your knees right you need some pants uh and uh maybe a shirt uh but it has to you can't have a loose shirt like this it needs to be trimmed your body so you that i have one of those
0: water bottles with like a little lotus on it right? you do
3: need the Get water that. bottle the lotus needs to be somewhere because <laughs> uh, well yeah
0: i mean how else would you <laughs> how else can yeah. you
3: practice right, right? so <laughs> in in this like consumer culture like around yoga there are hints towards its past right hints towards its geographical origin but yeah a just wholesale also this just denial as well. And so you're starting to see some uh, really amazing young, as I said, mainly women. I'm sure there are other folks involved doing this stuff too that are just like, okay, you know, let's make yoga more egalitarian. Let's make it mm-hmm. more accessible. I'm, I'm really excited actually by um this move to do more trauma informed yoga to really help you know uh, survivors of sexual assault or you know soldiers coming back from war and experiencing PTSD. I wrote I read a really cute article that the wounded warriors had put together like goat yoga for mm-hmm. wounded veterans and how great that was for them. So like when I talk about yoga and cultural appropriation, what I say is. I'm not telling anyone not to do yoga, that in the South Asian context of cultural appropriation, um, we're just looking for some sort of acknowledgement of the history and learning the history so that you can Mm -hmm. learn then more about this country, right. And the way in which this country has a long complicated history with, you know, white supremacy in multiple ways, right. Through colonialism, through Orientalism, through capitalism, through education, Uh, through missionaries, all of that fun stuff that explains why things are the way they are today, right? Um, And so yoga is just one little entrance into that. But I do feel like I should mention this. I'm really lucky. I have a great um, kind of conversation partner here up in Michigan. His (sighs) name is Eric Hemingway. And for years, the work he did is he's indigenous, um, Odawa, and um, his work was getting you know, Michigan indigenous remains back from various museums around the country and then re-burying them. So he started working on cultural appropriation and mascots as well. So we, the two of us were able to do a class together and talk about cultural appropriation. And one of the things that he really taught me, and I think it was like a mutual thing, is that we realize that we're both Indians, quote, but we have two <laughs> different approaches <laughs> to cultural appropriation because we're Indians with two different colonial histories, right? Yeah. So yeah. even though there were genocides in India, um, like I started as podcast out talking about the Bengali famine, um, the type of colonialism we experienced was not genocidal. It was a franchise type of colonialism, whereas the type of colonialism that Eric and his community and other indigenous communities in the Americas have experienced is settler colonialism. And that involves genocide. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know, uh, that's part of the mechanism of, of settler colonialism. And so I cannot imagine what it's like to not be able to speak my language to not be able to keep my hair long, to not be able to wear the clothes or display my culture. Um, Did I say not be able to speak my language? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was a big one to me. I just spent two weeks with my niece and really tried to speak Gujarati to her. She's 11 months old. And I, I was thinking about that. Like, you know, Eric's mother grew up in a time when even just practicing their religion was illegal. So Mm -hmm. I can understand from his perspective, he's like, no, you don't get to do this. Whereas I'm like, okay, if you want to wear the sari, like in a context of a wedding or ceremony, yeah, go ahead and do it. Right. If you want to practice yoga, just, you know, think of ways to learn the history, you know, and acknowledge its South Asian roots. That's good. Right. Like, but, he's on the other side of the spectrum where he's like, we've lost so much. So mm-hmm. please stay away. Don't participate. Don't come and ask to be part of a sweat lodge. He even says to himself, like, "Yeah, he's been asked, he's been told that he can participate in the ghost dance that some of his Lakota friends do. And he's like, that's not something I want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. But here's where the rubber hits the road is that we live in a capitalist society where we're not told no. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like there's yeah. nothing, if we want a sticker, that says, you know, like Ke- if I want a sticker that says Kelly rules and put it on my laptop, <laughs> right. which I kind of want now, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. all I have to do is Google. Yeah, and, and you can and it. find it. You can, can find it. it. Right. No one's going to tell me no, right. that I cannot have the sticker. But when someone like Eric says no, you cannot participate in this sweat lodge you right. know, tradition that is so deeply part of his tradition, right? No, you cannot use my face as your mascot. Right? Yeah. When people hear no, they while out. They just while out. Yeah. Right. And uh so that that is really so interesting to me. And you cannot tell me it is not connected to white supremacy and entitlement.
0: No, it's it's interesting because like when you said that you're both Indians <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in this different definition of it. And I thought immediately of um, you know, you went to the sweat lodge thing and how the other kind of similarity is like, yeah, there was a genocide on one end and you know, not not the other. And the exploitation and the specifics of colonialism were different, but they both ended up um being on sort of the receiving end of this sort of fetishized wellness culture mm-hmm. um yeah. <laughs> where. You know, white people are like who who for whatever reason um are seeking alternate ways of being healthy aside from like, you know, big pharma or whatever it is, then just go and exploit those cultures and take what they want from them. Um and then, you know, sort of incorporate them the way that they want. And um yeah, to me that's always been sort of the thing about American yoga that it's always kind of troubled me. Um and I and, I've, and I and I have a hard time, you know, sort of finding the 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 moral boundaries because I just don't know. <laughs> like, I know enough about Hinduism and yoga more than probably like the average person I would say, but like I, I don't know exactly how to feel about it, and and mm-hmm. and you know what is the sort of um, ethical right way to th- feel about it. I the the yoga pants thing is interesting too because I thought immediately like well yeah but also it pisses off a lot of like white male um, Christian fundamentalists so um, <laughs> keep wearing yoga pants if you want to because yeah. it makes it makes the right people mad but uh, <laughs> so I mean what what would you say to me then or someone like that who like how how should we because my kids do yoga right they mm-hmm. go to like a studio and they have the little yoga class and they have mats. And um, I'm not sure that they get a lot of insight into the cultural origins and meanings behind it, Um, but it's good for their focus (laughs) and their- and their and and their their of Yeah, yeah, all that sort of thing. They're not focused kids, generally speaking, Um, but it gives them a little time out. So like, I look at it and I'm sort of like, there's nothing about this that's bad and I guess that's sort of the the issue right it's like it's it's so hidden sort of the white supremacy is so hidden Mm -hmm. um how do we get more people to see it and sort of understand kind of recontextualize it
3: right I mean I I don't think there's any one easy answer to this but what I say to people whenever I talk this is you know and I got into some trouble with like Fox News and the and like oh a no! Collar and stuff over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I did have Tucker Carlson do an entire segment just on me. That's my ba- yes. badge of honor. You know, congratulations.
0: So, uh- That's really great. <laughs>
3: Thank you. He doesn't
0: have a job anymore, so he doesn't
3: have a job, and I do. So. Exactly. <laughs> so take uh- that. <laughs> <laughs> um, But what what I say is, this is clearly a very healthy practice right um, there have been at least in the last hundred years many Indian yogis that have hooked themselves up to blood pressure monitors to heart rate monitors etc to show how doing yoga helps that stuff out now again growing up with my grandfather um, who taught vipassha meditation and he would make me do yoga and stuff he also believed that vipassha meditation would also, help lower your heart rate and your blood pressure and all that. And there has been evidence of that. And I do know there was a documentary that came out about Vipassana in prisons um, and how that helped people in their kind of recovery back to society and their anger issues and everything. So all of this is good stuff, right? That's my Mm -hmm. point that this is all helpful, healthy stuff. And if there is something that can help you cope, with the trauma of this, you know, very capitalist society that is now veering into fascist like tendencies, then by all means, use it, right? If your kids are finding that yoga is helping with keeping them calmer, keeping them more focused, keeping them happier, that I don't know, I wouldn't, I personally would never say this belongs to one culture because nothing Mm. belongs necessarily to one culture. Again, putting aside the indigenous cultures, um, issues, right. That's a whole other thing that I think deserves some, a separate time, right. Um, food, culture, clothing moves and changes when it, when it moves. And so we are looking at a changed yoga here in the United States, right if we take the, we go with the premise that culture equals N plus one, right? So we can't ever know the true origins of anything, right? And that when you do start to look for origins, that kind of gets you into trouble, maybe into the trouble of fascism, right? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so so, so that, that's one Fair part point. of what I have to say. And two, like there's a simple remedy to the on discomfort that we might feel when practicing stuff from another culture, which is learn the history, learn the history, Mm -hmm. pay homage. You know, if you can um, learn from someone who is South Asian or someone who has experienced caste oppression, or, you know, someone who is giving yoga classes for free to people that can't afford it, that's the yoga studio that I'm going to choose. Right. Um, Yeah, because I can't afford it. And so I'm happily willing to (laughs) give that money to them so that someone else can go for free. You know, so there I think there are ways to kind of mitigate some of the ethical concerns that you have, because I do think that when done properly, yoga can help overcome some of the alienation created by capitalism. I also think that it can give you a good set of observational skills to see what's really going on in the world and um those are powerful things that are nothing but helpful right
0: can can you give a little bit of like so we're all around the same age and i'm speaking sort of from my my own perception of this um in that i don't growing up remember there being a big yoga craze and yeah. what seemed to happen was like around two, like I, so I moved to New York city in 2003 and over the course of uh, the years I lived there. So I was like, oh three to like 11. Uh, it really seemed to explode a lot in that time timeframe um, in terms of the, you know, affluent white women in Brooklyn um, mm-hmm. going to yoga as like a matter of course. Um, I know, for instance, like that autobiography of a yogi was a big sort of part of how this came to America um, and that the popularization of that book and then like, you know, Bikram, who I mentioned earlier, um, all of which is kind of problematic, but like, is there a is there a clear story of how the sort of capitalist Western American yoga of the early 2000s to now kind of like came to be and is that helpful in kind of that decolonialization process or, or, or not?
3: Um, so I would say I remember, well, so it's a little bit more complicated for me because I do remember doing yoga growing up, especially when my grandparents would visit. Right. But my earliest reference to yoga and pop culture for me personally was actually Madonna In the 90s? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay,
3: okay. She said she did yoga to help her, you know, and I remember she did some performance on one of these music shows, like MTV or Grammy, I forget which one it was, where she chanted something in Sanskrit, but I don't think she asked anyone how to pronounce things. So that was like, and then after, that was my first, and then I think I heard Gwyneth, paltrow also did it in the 90s so um <laughs> the other thing i do remember was um <laughs> jane fonda doing yoga yeah
0: i was i I was gonna say that so like i remember her like videos right yeah. that's the earliest i remember yeah. kn- like knowing about yoga growing up in massachusetts in like the 80s right yeah. was the jane fonda videos but then it just sort of yeah then you had like madonna and that one album in the late 90s where she got into it or whatever and that but it really kind of became it really did
3: become much more mainstream
0: yeah and went from
3: like a coastal so i would say like you know starting with obviously thoreau but also the theosophist that yoga was very coastal (sighs) Yeah, And in some of the bigger cities like Chicago, Vive- Vivekananda went to Chicago for the World Parliament of Religions. And, you know, so you would see that in play and then that- and it would pop up in like, like the wife of the president of Purdue University ran away with a white yogi in like 1908. So it was like pop up <laughs> in,
0: <laughs> right.
3: in the Midwest right. sometimes, but was very, I would say, mainly coastal up until... 2000, when you would, I think you started seeing more yoga studios pop up, um, yoga becoming something done in schools, as well as Mm -hmm. gyms. Um, There was a book by this Russian woman by the name of Indra Devi that came out, I want to say in the 1950s, early 60s, that was like yoga for beauty. And she became a big person (laughs) in like Hollywood. Um, And during that time. But I'd say, in terms of becoming like a whole country craze, it wasn't really until the early two thousands. I would one hundred percent agree with you there. Um, But there was something else. I forget. Well, there's another part to your question.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I like. I just think it's weird that it's sort of. I mean, I. I I don't. there must be a lot of different sort of factors that played into that happening, but but the the way that it sort of crept into ubiquity um, I think is really interesting. But I also like if there's an accepted narrative about sort of how that happened, if that helps to contextualize or sort of like you know wind back the clock enough to sort right. of see when that divorce from the cultural connection and religious connection to it uh, began to happen. And if that's helpful for, for yeah. Americans to kind well, of see. I would say
3: right? that the divorce between the religious and the kind of actual practice of yoga was very intentional. I would say it started with um, Swami Vivekananda in um, in 1893 when he came here. And when he would mm-hmm. teach yoga to upper middle class white women, what he would say is, You do, you have a separate space for your yoga. And when he taught, it was mainly breathing exercises, um, that he called Raja yoga. And you would have your, you have your separate space for doing that. And then on Sunday you go to church. So his goal was not to convert anyone. His goal was to get people to practice something that he constructed or sold as complementary to Christianity, not something that is opposed to Christianity.
2: Right. And,
3: uh, Yogananda did that as well. And that was very strategic because they did need to raise money for what they wanted to do in India um, and what they wanted to set up here as well. And uh, so they were able to raise quite a bit of cash by teaching this technique and really in some ways also empowering white women to own their own spirituality um, in ways that maybe they weren't able to or didn't have an outlet to do so in the early 1900s. Right. Um, mm. so this was one mechanism for possible empowerment and to get under the thumb of Christian patriarchy. Yeah, the
1: the gender element is always so interesting to me about it, right? That it's so geared. I mean, that craze, right, is so geared towards women and women's mm-hmm. magazines and just as this sort of like the more you know about the body, the more empowered you are, right? The more yeah. you have control of your destiny, or something like this. I mean, like and the language that was very is
3: very esoteric. Yeah, yeah,
1: the language is really fascinating right. about how this works. Like um, as early
3: as the 1940s, you were seeing newspaper articles pop up in like places like the Atlanta Constitution, basically being like, you know, doing yoga will give you a trim body. <laughs> that early that, yeah, early. that yeah. early yeah that's
0: why it exists yeah,
3: yeah. And, and I would say that's why like if you look at the 1950s and 60s and you look at people like Richard Hittleman or even Indra Devi that wrote books about yoga it was geared towards women and mm-hmm. it was all about getting a better body yeah yeah so yeah <laughs> No, I, I
0: kind of feel it seems like it still is too right I mean oh, like this, there's a subtext to it as well where like the wellness the whole sort of wellness ecosystem is sort of like but really what you're trying to do is get a better body like, you know what I mean it's mm-hmm. the, it's it's almost yeah. like it's always kind of shrouded in several layers but yeah but the subtext is always is always that
3: yeah I, I would a 100%, 100% agree with that that's why the the shift to like the
1: goat yoga and the like trauma <laughs> yeah. yoga is so interesting because of the focus on mental health there. Yes. Yeah. um Could you say a little bit more about that and what you think that shift is telling us about where yoga <gasps> is going? And well, what
0: is goat yoga for those who, who don't? Oh uh,
3: yeah, sorry. I'm obsessed <laughs> with anything with goats, so um, yeah. no, goats yeah. are awesome.
0: I'm I mean, goat, goat
3: yoga, from what I understand. You know, I haven't actually been able to go to a goat yoga class. Um, I was planning to and then pandemic and, you know, and there's not many here in East Lansing, Michigan, surprisingly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from what I say goat yoga usually involves baby goats. Because Sorry, you know, best,
0: the best kind of goats. If
3: we know anything about regular goats, they are kind of mean and they're not like domesticated animals per se in the same way that we might think of like cows right so baby goats and they let them roam around while you're doing yoga and you get opportunities to like do poses with them and cuddle with them while the yoga class is going on sometimes there is also wine involved depending on where the goat yoga class is taking place so I believe there's a place in Oregon that does that do not quote me on that um (laughs) Yeah, the baby goes to be the only way I'm gonna be convinced
1: to do yoga. I mean, if I'm yeah. gonna be really real about this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then trauma-based yoga is um usually if it is in person, very few people in the class, no touching you know, sometimes when you're in a yoga class, a teacher will come and help you like make sure you're mm-hmm. correctly aligned. None of that. Um, everything is about re-empowering, reconnecting you to your body so that you can properly process the trauma that you've experienced. And that trauma can be anything from torture, you know, uh, rape survivors, uh, you know, military personnel coming out from a war zone, um, childhood abuse, you know, there's all sorts of people participating in this. And I think, you know, feeling safe enough to go in there where you know, no one will touch you is really powerful. Um, And knowing that you don't have to compare, it's a small class, you don't have to compare yourself to anyone. This is about you healing and reconnecting with your body. Because as helpful as therapy is, a lot of it is just talk. And sometimes you need to reengage the the connection that is there between right. the mind and the body, right? Yeah. Um it's it really is just one whole thing. You don't you're not there because you're thinking. You know, you're there right. because yeah. of your body and the actions that your body takes. Right.
0: I will say I think if if you just say the sentence though, um they do goat yoga with wine in Oregon, you have like a 100% chance of being accidentally right. So, um <laughs> I think you're in the clear there.
3: <laughs> I have a feeling that that is an, a not, not incorrect statement.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could probably add like nudism in there too, if you wanted to. I, yeah. I think you'd be fine.
3: <laughs> there you go. So. It'd be good. It would be good. Yeah. I guess one other thing that I did want to say is you mentioned decolonizing yoga. And one thing where I think, I would push back against that is the language of decolonization works really well when looking at indigenous studies or African studies in the context of South Asian studies, the term decolonization has been co-opted by the right-wing Hindus. Oh,
2: oh wow. <clears throat> um,
3: yeah. Yeah. So they're all decolonizing while, you know, continuing to be casteist and Islamophobic and anti-woman Yikes. and anti-Christian and all those other fun things. so, oh, so interesting. Um, but this one woman, her name is Thenmuri Soundarajan, and she's written this amazing book on caste, The Trauma of Caste, it's called. And um, I actually taught it in my Hinduism class this past semester, as well as my um, Asian American studies course. And um, she talks not in the book, but after the book came out, she started talking about de-Brahmanizing yoga, not decolonizing yoga, which mm-hmm. I thought was a really just brilliant way to talk about some of the issues in yoga um, in, in a – I don't know. I just thought it, I thought it was brilliant because yeah. uh, it really gets to the crux of the issue regarding – some of the issues around yoga and how it has been disseminated because the majority of yoga sellers, if you will, from Mm -hmm. South Asia are either Brahmin or Brahmin adjacent, like very Mm -hmm. upper caste or dominant caste, I should say. So um, yeah, that's another thing that I'm just trying to at least bring awareness to, right? Because I feel like in the South Asian community, yeah, we deal with white supremacy, but we also perpetuate caste supremacy. So I'm always telling like my fellow family members and friends and everyone who are across the board pretty much anti-Trump, right? And I'm like, if you don't like Trump, why do you like Modi?
2: Oof. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <Good> question. <laughs> and, and not everyone has – that's an uncomfortable question that they don't want to yeah. answer. Yeah. Especially yep. Gujaratis, because I'm Gujarati, Modi is Gujarati, you know. And oftentimes I'll have people say to me, oh, well, he was not upper caste. You don't have to be upper caste to perpetuate casteism, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's always a fun question with like crickets. Afterwards. Yeah, I bet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's like five different spin-off episodes from this episode that we need to do now. Uh <laughs> you you, you ripped the band-aid off the theosophy thing, so that's going to have to happen at some yeah, point. Yeah, no, it but... has to.
2: Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> I, I
0: also like so I can we talk about cast for a second, too, because I think this is one of those places that um is a real blind spot for a lot of um Americans probably especially. You, you you talked about your grandparents being of two different yeah. castes. I think a lot of people would hear that and be like, Oh, that's cute. Um how yeah. sweet that they're from two different castes and fell in love and and uh Romeo and Juliet and all that stuff. Um what so explain for the sort of uninitiated like what that actually means and why right. that is not just a cute love story. Um the, right. the role that cast still plays uh, in, in, you know, modern society, um, in India, what, what, what is, what is it still? And, 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 you know, what, what can be, what can actually be done about it?
3: Right. Well, so caste is basically a system of social stratification that you are assigned at birth. Right. And uh, that determines what career, what education, what your lot in life is. And um, there's a lot of people that will say caste became worse after colonization. And my response to that is colonialism, colonization, imperialism, whatever the mechanism of that you want to call it. I'll say colonialism. Does a fantastic job of of hiding or eliminating the progressive in a society and enhancing and solidifying the conservative or oppressive elements in a society. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the possibility is yes, that maybe mm, colonialism did make caste worse, but there had to be something there before for to, for them to make worse. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Um, to me that argument doesn't hold any water and is disingenuous and doesn't focus on what you could be doing right now. Right. And, um, so just a few things about cast. One is if you get the chance read then Morty's book, the trauma of cast, it's brilliant. It explains cast so well. Um, two, uh, the reason that I, I always say these two statistics because I want people to know how serious this is, which is that at least two in three Dalit women and Dalit women are women. Dalit means um, those who do not have caste status. So they are Averna versus Severna, which is someone like me, even though technically I would not be considered whatever. um, My last name gives me the privilege of having caste status, right? Until people know our story and, you know, terrible things have happened. I don't want to go into all of that, but especially my father felt it, you know, um, and he did what he could to protect me and my sister from it, you know, um, as did my mom. But uh, there were things that were said uh, that always reminded me that I was different in some way. Right. Um, But so two in three Dalit women will experience sexual violence in their lifetime, and that is a conservative estimate. And the average lifespan lifespan for a Dalit woman in India is 39 years old. Holy cow. Right? So that tells you anything about the type of lives they are forced to live, which is why I think this is such an important issue. And then when you have groups like the Hindu American Foundation and the Coalition of Hindus of North America basically deny it and say caste is there because of colonialism, it's like, No. Right. This has been around mm. for 3000 years. And if you know Kelly and I often say you can't undo 500 years of white supremacy in 50. Right. You can't undo 3000 years of caste supremacy in 300. Right.
2: Yeah. It's going right.
3: to take time, effort and intention because putting those systems of caste and white supremacy together took time, effort and intention. Right. right? By people that wanted to stay in power. Right. And so I think this is not a major part of my scholarship, but it's I would say it's a big part of my activism. I'm trying to get Michigan State to add it to their non-discrimination policy that they're rewriting right now. Um, I'm hoping that the state of Michigan will follow the state of California and make this a part of their civil rights uh, legislation as well. I'm I'm really, really lucky. I I know I've talked to Kelly about this. I belong to a group that at first we started calling ourselves the intellectuals and now we call mm-hmm. ourselves <laughs> feminist critical Hindu studies. And we've published a few things together, but we published one article that I know is being taught in graduate seminars on Hinduism on what feminist critical Hindu studies is. And it really excavates how um, white supremacy and caste supremacy are such a big part of the study of hinduism within religious studies and i think what's really telling is that you have very few dalits in religious studies Mm -hmm. you have Mm. some in theology and you have mainly history english and that that's an indictment of our field Mm -hmm. right and what we can and should be doing better same thing with we have very few people who are um indigenous and in mm-hmm. religious studies, so we just hired two indigenous faculty at Michigan State University. Neither of them have their degrees in religious studies, and that's okay. They're going to be so great. I'm so excited, but that's an that's also an indictment of our field. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And um, I think that religious studies has some big questions that we need to ask ourselves, you know. Um, and so in this article, me and my colleagues. Uh, it's Shana Sippy, Sailaja Krishnamurti and um, uh, Harshita K- uh, Murthy. K- I know I'm pronouncing that terribly wrong right now. My mouth is dry and I'm nervous. So. <laughs> oh, <Sorry>. You're great. <laughs> you're doing great. <laughs> but um, I, um, I, you know, one of the things, two of the things that have really stood out to me, one is in this article at the end, we wrote our commitments you know, that we're anti-caste, we're anti-white supremacy, you know, and that we are going to do what we can to even the field, right? And <clears throat> that's an ethical statement that mm-hmm. we made, right? And we intentionally did it that way. The other thing is that we're intentionally writing together. If sometimes like someone can't do something, we're we're really trying to have a feminist outlook and a feminist praxis, Mm -hmm. where we are centering different values, not the values of individuals, or, you know, my name should be first, or your name should be first, or, you know, I want a single authorship on this, because that's what's going to get me tenure, we're really trying to push, because I think one of the people are always saying the humanities are in crisis, maybe because we're not talking to each other, right, maybe because we're not collaborating together and writing together, And thinking through these big ideas together, Mm -hmm. right? And so that kind of feminist praxis in academia, I think, is severely lacking. And I'm proud to be part of something that is really trying to push the envelope on this while also having a centered ethical commitment to dismantle caste, to fight Islamophobia, to fight the treatment of uh, women and, and girls you know, in the you know South Asian culture, right, mm-hmm. uh, and non-South Asian culture as well. Like that's right. a global thing, right? So, um, I guess wheeling back to our first question on what got you into religious studies, <laughs> what's keeping me? <laughs> right, right. What's keeping me in religious studies is yep. my friendships with people like Kelly and Megan, where I feel like we can talk about these tough things together and also writing with folks like Harshita, uh, Shanna, Sylaja, um, that has reinvigorated my hopes for this field. Yeah. Uh, for the discipline, uh, because uh, I think we can be better. It's just frustrating when we choose not to be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think we can be better too, and um, I think that what you're saying here shows us that we can be better too, which is always so um, powerful and really enheartening. Which is nice since I tend to be disheartened, so <laughs> I like it when
2: <laughs> I like
1: it
3: when it goes the other way. Really. <laughs> so if Kelly is all like skeletons and Halloween. <laughs>
2: yeah yeah
3: you know um i guess i am all uh christmas trees and gifts (laughs) yeah no it's true it's true Uh, i love christmas i'm a horrible hindu but i love christmas
1: yes that's okay that's okay
0: that's fine yeah you can that's yes uh christmas is for everybody
1: Yes well Serena, well, we are so glad to have you on and to have this whirlwind
3: of a conversation with you that has covered yeah, um so much so thank you so much for being thank with you. us today is there anything that i can answer that i didn't properly answer i
2: don't
0: think uh, probably so. but we'll, we'll have you back
2: yeah we will no we're gonna have you back
3: and we're gonna have
2: to
1: have the um the intellectuals on at some point too because yeah. that just sounds pretty amazing um where can we find you if we want to find you somewhere that's not the pod
3: um i'm on twitter and instagram as srina Niketa, so at s-h-r-e-e-n-a-n-i-k-e-t-a that is my full name <laughs> but no one ever calls me that <laughs> and to that i say thank god <laughs> Or maybe I should say thank Pod. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. Oh,
0: hey, there, well, look at that. Look at <laughs> that.
1: I love all the people that keep giving us like great phrases to use. Um, mm-hmm. it makes mm-hmm. it makes our lives easier. And yeah. and Thanks maybe for someone...
0: validating our stupid puns. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. That's right. And if anyone <laughs> wants to email me, they can also email me there at Gmail. Or for those who are interested, I do have the world's greatest email handle that Michigan State gave me, which is oh. gondish at MSU. Oh,
0: that is
3: it's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. That's <laughs> <great>. <laughs> when I you saw that You gotta do more with
0: that. That you gotta when like that's, that, that's gotta be that's gotta be trademarked.
3: I know. When I saw that I was like, what? Why haven't I ever thought of this? And it's amazing. <laughs> and I got it just when like blackish came out too. Yeah. It's like this is Thank you, thank you, MSU. <laughs> yes, for doing that for you.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, can I just give one more? Can I just give one more plug to oh, my yeah. department? Oh um, So I am at Michigan State University. Like I said, we just hired two new faculty members. We have a great department. But speaking about like changing in religious studies, uh, I'm not a part of this, but my colleagues um, are look have started a new. Master's program in nonprofit leadership. Oh, interesting! Um, and they're also starting. So we have, like, you know, you can be a major in religious studies, and you can get like a minor in in nonprofits. But now, I think they're going to change it in the next few years so that you can also get a major in that. So I think that's a really good way of thinking about how to make religious studies applicable beyond, you know, getting your PhD. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Also good things to know. Also good things to know. So I'm proud of my department and everything they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. All right. Well, thank you so much. So much. Thank
0: you.
2: Thank
3: you. We appreciate it.